Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, uh, Mishkin Law in Chicago. I'm joined by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego. And uh, we have a very exciting show for you today. We're going to cover a lot of stuff, and it's the beginning of our coverage of the 50th anniversary of Europe 72. Let's dive right in. Dan, what do you got for us out of the box? I've got no chance of losing this Okay, uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Great to have you back here today. And uh, give us a quick uh, uh, description of what we're listening to there. Well, as promised from last week, Larry, I, I took your advice and said, let's do 42672, 100 Years Hall, uh, a show that a lot of people out there are very familiar with because The Grateful Dead did release it quite a while ago. Uh, and it's, you know, of the Europe 72s before they put out the huge box set. You know, this one was actually released significantly before that. So, terrific show, top to bottom. Um, but, uh, you know, as we talked about previously, Loser was only introduced in, in 1971. A lot of the stuff on Europe 72 was either coming off of, um, you know, the new Garcia album or off of uh, Bobby Ace or off of a handful of, you know, kind of other things that, that had just been released in, uh, in 71 um, from American Beauty or Working Man's Dead. But this is really sort of a transformative period in the Grateful Dead's career. But Loser was really, at this point, you know, starting to be pretty well thought out. Um, and uh, what we listened to there was just coming coming uh, into the, the jam, essentially, which is a much, much shorter loser jam than, than anything we're seeing, uh, you know, let's call it in the late 80s, early 90s, but really, really clean. You know, everything from Europe 72 sounds clean. It's all so new and fresh, and I think that they're, you know, excited by it. And even that version of Loser, you're right. I mean, by comparison to what we were hearing in the mid-80s, you know, through the end, you know, you, you might almost call this upbeat, right? Because, you know, Jerry really, you know, and, and whether he was just slowing down or whether he was like, you know, living the part of the, the guy he was singing about, he, he definitely had slowed it down and, and, and really kind of, you know, dragged it out. Not in a bad way. I always enjoyed a good loser at, at a concert. Um, you know, first said Jerry uh, uh, ballad is always a good thing. But, but you know, when you, when you listen to any of these tunes uh, that they're playing in Europe 72, I think you almost always come away with that same feeling, right? That, wow, listen to these tunes when they're, when they're just kind of putting them together, when they're just, you know, getting on top of their game with it. And I think for them, Europe 72 is just a tremendous showcase. And, you know, it, we could easily spend every episode, you know, from now till the end of May talking about it. Um, and we won't just because not everybody wants to talk about Europe 72 all the time. I get that. Hard to believe, but true. I get it. Um, but th these are just tremendous shows, you know, and, and on the tour right now, this is a, a great point for them. They're, they're just uh, the show we're going to talk about today, 100 Year Hall, 
or your hundred Paul, or however it would be pronounced in German, is pretty much, I believe, the end of the West German leg of the tour. They played a television station right before this show. They had played in uh, Dusseldorf. There may be one other German show. And then, you know, they, they take off for other parts of the continent and ultimately make their way to Paris uh, for the uh, monumental shows there at the beginning of Paris, uh, the beginning of May, uh, which we'll be talking about in future episodes. But today it's... Uh, it's this Jar 100 Hall, 100 Year Hall album. And 1995 is when the Dead released the album itself. Uh, uh, and it, it, was, it was a Dead release. It, it wasn't you know, released as a From the Vault or anything like that. It was just released as a, as a live release from the Grateful Dead. And the liner notes explain that it was part of a show. Uh, it, w- it was part of the, the, the performance from this show uh, in West Germany, in this hall that was, uh, you know, at least a hundred years old, I guess, uh, if not more. And um, eventually, they released the whole show when they released the uh, Europe '72 box set. But there was a couple of shows. I believe this this show from uh, uh, Dusseldorf was also released uh, by the Dead uh, a number of years ago. Is is just a live recording that that they released. Um, but the beauty of the Europe 72 tour was uh, you finally get the entire show. And uh, the 100-Year Hall album has a lot of the first set, uh, not as much of the second set. And you know, to be able to listen to the entire show uh, is a really great thing. But you know, th- this was significant for me in, in terms of uh, live music being released by the dead. I, I, they were just they had released uh, the, the first two from the vaults, and they had released Dick's Picks One and Dick's Picks Two. Uh, so everything that they were releasing live at that time was all still kind of exciting and brand new. And I remember being uh, working in my office downtown in the Chicago Loop one day, and we had the radio on to the local you know WXRT, the local hip rock and roll station, and all of a sudden they started playing Bertha. And it was a live version of Bertha, but I had never heard this live version of Bertha before. It wasn't off of Skull and Roses, and it wasn't off of anything else that I had ever heard. And I immediately picked up the phone, and I called the local radio station. I'm like, where is this? What Grateful Dead are you guys playing? And he goes, oh, yeah, this is this new album, 100-Year Hall, that just got released. And I immediately got up, ran down to the local CD store. They had just gotten it in, bought it, took it home, and listened to the entire thing twice, um, just because it was so exciting and so cool. And, you know, I'd realize, wow, this is, this is Europe 72, right? Up to that point, all we'd ever heard was what was released on the, uh, on the double album, which is great, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like barely anything by comparison uh, to what we have now. So great choice for today. And, you know, Loser is just such a, a, a great tune to, to always start out with. And one of the things I'll say from what you're saying is that I think a lot of people forget that until One, for the Vault, One from the Vault came out in uh, 1991, you know, you had the, the real sort of live dead or some other you know, st- uh, recordings that had some live material on it, but it wasn't the same. You know, like One from the Vault was the first time that they came out and said, let's give you a full live show. And then, you know, Two for the Vault came out and then the first Dick's Picks, second Dick's Picks. This is only the fifth one over five years that they came out with. So for them to have picked this, you know, at that point, we were kind of expecting that the Dick's Pick series was going to be, you know, all the live recordings coming out. And then they sort of switched it up on us and threw out 100 Years Hall as, a, um, as just a tweener in between uh, two of the, uh, the Dick's Picks ones, all coming out in 1995. So, you know, much like yourself, when this one came out, it was, uh, 
it was a big deal. It was like, okay, wow, we're getting, you know, more remastered, uh, fantastic recordings from, you know, different, different eras. And that was what was really cool about it, is they're picking shows from different times, different years, and say, okay, let's just throw out some of our favorites, which is really cool. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, uh, you know, to, to, I mean, look, Live Dead is pretty cool for what it is. And, you know, certainly it's, it's tremendous in, in, you know, in, in many respects. And Skull and Roses is a great live album, too. Uh, but, even, you know, even all the way up through uh, Reckoning and Dead Set and Without a Net, although any of them have great songs on them, none of them are a complete show. And, you know, we hadn't yet been exposed to the idea of a complete Grateful Dead show being released, you know, so you could have it on something other than, you know, hopefully a not very scratchy cassette tape. Until One From The Vault. Right. And then, boom, One From The Vault came out, Two From The Vault, and then all of a sudden, the Dick's Picks, and now, you, we're, you know, we're living large. And what always surprised me about that was I figured that the From The Vault series was just going to continue right along, too, and maybe they'd have two side-by-side series going of releasing live albums. But after what, I guess... From the vault after number two, there was a big delay. Then they did from the vault three. I, I don't think they ever got past. Did they ever get to four? I don't think so. I don't think so. But you got view from the vault when they started doing the uh, the videos when they put out you know six fourteen ninety one um, as a <clears throat> as a full concert you know with the video, which I'm really really surprised that more of that hasn't been done because you think that you know there's there's so much uh, material out there that every single show at least on summer tour where you know it was all being recorded to put on the big screens for the audience to see. There had to be a feed, you know, to record all of those. So from those summer tour shows, you'd think that there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of available hours of, uh, of material to, you know, sort of go back through and edit and, and put them out as videos. Well, you're right. And they actually did the uh, Trucking Up to Buffalo release that they did of a, you know, July 4th show up in Buffalo, New, Buffalo, New, Buffalo, New York. Sorry, Dan. Um, from uh, like 1990, I want to say, or 91 or whenever it was. And uh, that came out as, a, as, as, as another one of these, you know, live releases that wasn't a From the Vault, wasn't a Dick's Picks. And that one was actually released with the uh, DVD. So you could, you know, listen to it on the CD or you could watch it on the DVD. And that's great. It, it's, it's, you know, really great quality. And, um, you know, you see the boys up on stage doing their thing. And that's very cool, too. Um, but now, of course, you know, you can go on YouTube and catch just about, well, not any show because they don't have video of every show. But surprisingly, they have videos of, of earlier shows sometimes when somebody would just be carrying around a camera and video uh, it for them. A lot more than you'd think. I mean, that was the one thing that they were pretty tight about. Like sneaking, um, you know, bringing in a, a tape recorder was easy, but bringing in any sort of video equipment was really, really tough. And I knew some friends that were doing it that were, you know, coming up with these really small cameras that they had. And then they'd link them to, you know, uh, microphones that'd be on their hat, sort of like just tucked on so you get the audio recording as well. But sneaking video equipment into a dead show was not easy. So, you know, the, the sheer volume that's available out there, I'm always blown away. I'm like, ah, someone actually got this one. And then the ability to kind of be that outlier standing still during an entire show to, uh, to get it where it's not, you know, jerky quality the entire time. You're sticking out like a sore thumb to like not be dancing during that show. Or I'm sure everyone's looking at you like... Look, man, you're not enjoying the show, and you, know, you can't say anything. You just have to sit there quietly and just, you know, do your video. And then years later, you get all the accolades. Oh, you were the dude who was just standing there the whole time. Nice. Now I get it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, look, you know, that's 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 you know, that's why we all ran around like crazy trying to grab as many cassette tapes as we could and everything because it's you know it, it it's 
if you like the Grateful Dead music, if you really, really like it, what you like about it is that there's no certainty to it, that it's always new, it's always strange, it's always different. And, you know, I'll, I'll go out and, you know, listen to every version of Bertha that they ever recorded, you know, in just about any tune that they have, because it always is played a little bit different, different context, different place in the set list, different energy. Some nights it's sharp, some nights it's kind of fuzzy. To me, that was the best part about them releasing all of this was I finally had access to live tunes and didn't just have to go back and rely on the the handful of of live cuts that they had released up to that point. And it was really uh, uh, the beginning of a great era that's, I mean, now only gotten better and better, right? We have our standard four Dave's Picks release every year. We have their standard box set release every year, Um, you know, plus whatever else they drop along the way for 50th anniversaries or anything like that. And, you know, I mean, I guess if you think about it, if they're going to release, you know, four Dave's Picks a year, and what, what is there, 2,100 shows or something? I think they're covered for a number of years, so it's all going to work out just fine for our generation. Yep, I think we've got plenty of material to go. And uh, I'm pleased with the pick we have today. And one of the things I love about Loser is I love the title of it. I love the fact that, you know, you listen to the song and it's, you know, kind of the, the optimist that sits at the card table and just thinks every single hand he's going into he's got a shot at uh only to ultimately you know be the loser but you know if you were to listen to the song and just only listen to the lyrics you think okay this guy actually has a you know he's confident right but then you look at the title and it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the song yeah it really does and and look you know i don't want to beat a dead horse because we say this too many times but this is what separates the grateful dead from every other band out there right is that you have a lyricist who's a poet and who's, you know, a natural poet, and with lyrics that would stand up on their own with or without the music attached to it. And, you know, Loser tells such a compelling story, um, you know, as do the other songs we're going to get to today as well, you know, and I think that's one of the hallmarks of these tunes, and what makes them so great is that the dead are telling a story, and, you know, from different perspectives and different times in their lives, you know, they, they tell the story differently. And that's, I think, you know, another part about what makes it all so great. So... Um, we'll get, we got a lot more to talk about with this, but let's, uh, let's dive over for a minute and, and touch on some things that are going on the, uh, on the marijuana side of the world. Looks like the East coast is, uh, finally getting ready to kick in here, huh? It's on fire right now. So first of all, congratulations to everyone in New Jersey, uh, anyone out there in, in Jersey that is now able to access adult use cannabis as of, uh, April 21st. Uh, congrats to all you guys. Congrats to the people that actually have stores that are open. I think there was 12 stores that opened on, on opening day. There's quite a bit more that's waiting to, to come live. There's you know quite a few cultivators I think that are, are you know, ready to go uh, go live soon. But uh, but this is a big moment. You know it's it's the first kind of like big population state in the Northeast that uh, is allowed for adult use, and uh, it's just under you know kind of where, where some of the other states are going to be here in the next six to 12 months. But it's on now. I mean, Jersey's Jersey's open. That's putting pressure now on, on Wolf to move in uh, in Pennsylvania. It's certainly definitely lit the fire under Kathy Hochul in New York. But uh, the New Jersey sales, by all counts, you know, it went pretty smooth on the opening day. There's massive lines. There's massive amounts of people. It's right after the 420 holidays. So you think that you know ordinarily everyone's already kind of stocked up, but uh, it sure didn't seem to um, to depress the demand that uh, that seemed to exist when I saw all the pictures and all the the you know news feeds of the lines that were, were lined up, you know, in some of those shops. So this is a, this is a big deal for Jersey. Dude, let's just be honest. Anyone who ever saw the dead play at Brendan Byrne knows that the folks in Jersey smoke a ton of weed, just a ton of weed. That place used to fill up like you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Sometimes it was so crazy out there. So these people are obviously 
stoked and ready to go. And, you know, good for them and good for the state for finally getting its act together and saying yes, and good for them for beating New York to the punch. And you're right, it has lit a fire under uh, Hochul. We'll get to that in one second. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jersey. You know, they're the butt of a lot of jokes. We all get it, you know, the, the toll booth uh, exits and all of that, but uh, or the toll re- tollway exits. But you know what? At the end of the day, they're, they're very forward and progressive thinking in a lot of areas. Um, and, you know, here's a great example. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, the more and more people that, that cross over uh, the river from New York to New Jersey instead of what's typically the other way around, uh, we'll and from Pennsylvania to Jersey, you know, coming across from Philly. Right, right, right. Pen- Pennsylvania has got to, they've been talking about it for a long time. They've got to pull the trigger too. And, and I think that they will as a result of this as well. Um, but, you know, you're right. We have New York and we have the, uh, the new governor there who is a fan of marijuana in the way that uh, uh, Cuomo was not. Um, and saying, look, we, we've said we're going to do it. Let's quit screwing around and actually do it. What's interesting, we can probably segue right now to New York because, you know, Hochul has come out and said that we are going to move on this. What's interesting to me is, is they've taken the approach really similar to what um, Florida did about six years ago, which is in many ways they've kind of turned the, uh, the industry over to the hemp licensees, which, uh, which is strange to me. Like I've never understood. In my mind, it's, it's no different than saying, okay, alcohol is illegal here, but you can have non-alcoholic breweries and then all of a sudden you legalize alcohol and you go, okay, well, those breweries are already in place. Let's just give the non-alcoholic guys the, uh, the, the industry. So, you know, here it's like anyone that got a hemp license, uh, much like in Florida, anyone that got a hemp license and automatically got first bite at the Apple, the cannabis license, even though in my mind, the two have very little in common in terms of, in terms of industry and in terms of who's interested in doing it. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. And, and then all the rest of the retail licenses, you know, Kathy Hochul still reserving for social equity applicants which, you know, opens up a whole other wave of, uh, of controversy and issues as to, you know, whether or not the people that are meant to be empowered are really, you know, getting it, as we've discussed in the past. But, you know, at this point, New York is saying that, uh, you know, by the end of the summer, early fall, that they think they're going to start the adult use sales and they think they've got, you know, enough infrastructure in place to make a relatively smooth transition. And if, you know, Jersey's any, any sort of harbinger of things to come, then perhaps they're right. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a fully built out and robust system, but New York never has been. New York's been woefully deficient in, in what's available in legal cannabis. So, you know, just saying that we're actually going to make the uh, the transition, I've got to think that ex- that state expands in a really meaningful way. I think there's going to have to be hundreds and hundreds of available dispensaries to really make that. It, it, honestly, I think there needs to be hundreds and hundreds of dispensaries just in New York City proper for, for this thing, whole thing to work. But, um, you know, so far they haven't shown a great deal of um, desire to move quickly. Uh, I think we're going we're gonna to watch it be incremental movement, but it has to be an expansive market. If not, I mean, I'm still hearing, I'm still hearing so many stories out of California where I am of just how much the volume of what's you know, produced here is still bound for New York City. And that's, you know, that's even with the main market and the, and the Rhode Island market, you know, flooding cannabis into New York. Um, you know, it's still making its way fully cross country from here. And if, you know, the people don't realize that, or if the lawmakers don't realize that in New York, that the only way to fix that is to, uh, is to completely just expand their market and make sure that New York City has access to, uh, to legal, safe, and available, you know, cannabis at a price commensurate with what they can get the illicit market for, then, then New York is, it's going to take a long time for that market to develop. I think that's also true. Um, but hopefully she will, uh, you know, 
learn from the mistakes of other states, you know, most painfully Illinois, which we'll get to in a minute. And uh, <laughs> Come on, man. Do you really believe that, though? <laughs> you know, they never learn. They never learn from the mistakes. It's like they, I, I keep watching states, state after state after state, make them, and they're all going with this mantra of, like, oh, we don't want to be the Wild West like Colorado. Uh, okay, look at Colorado. It went through, like, a period of, like, oversaturation, and now it's like, you know, faded into a really nice equilibrium in a state that has probably the, the best, to, still to this day, the best organized cannabis industry out there because they actually said we're going to allow, you know, people to open up and if they can't make it as, as entrepreneurs, then they're going to have to shut down just like any other industry. But we're not going to give an artificial advantage to the best capitalized. We're not going to give an artificial disadvantage to anyone. So it's like, let the even playing field work, let free market capitalism work. And that's what this country is founded on, is giving everyone an equal opportunity. So why can't we do that in these other states? But everyone's like, oh, well, we just don't want the saturation. Okay, and then what's the alternative? Like, stop sticking your head in the sand and actually realize that all you're doing is, is allowing for an illicit industry to flourish that you're trying to get rid of. If the whole goal is to snuff that out, then actually look at what actually accomplishes your goal. And it's not, it's not limited licenses. It's not incremental change. It's tear the Band-Aid off, let the thing happen, and, and let everyone fight it out until you know, the best operators survive and the ones that don't, don't. It's, it's, it's very simple economics 101. Well, and, and you know, while people might say, well, you know, a state like Colorado has a long, deep, rich history, what about Oklahoma? People can't. Oklahoma has, you know, no deep, rich history in the, in the public conscience of cannabis and marijuana. I'm not saying they didn't smoke it there for years. I'm sure they did. But, you know, that was a state also that said, the hell with this. We're just going to open it up. Now, again, some people might argue that they've gotten to a point of oversaturation. But so what? They, they have. That just means. They have. Right. But it's going to consolidate. That just means now is not a time to open a dispensary, you know, maybe in the yeah. future. It's like, but you know what? A neighborhood can only accommodate so many McDonald's, right? Once you get your saturation point of McDonald's, you can't open up anymore. So it, it's it's really the same with everything. And this idea of licensing is, is nothing more than, you know, a, a play by the government to maintain some level of control over all of this and, of course, to be able to profit off of it, not just through taxes, but through all of the crazy fees you have to pay to apply for licenses and to register each year and and everything that you have to do. But my experience after all of this time is that I don't really believe that the state governments have the best interest in heart of anybody when they try to put these programs into play, because if they did, they would do exactly what you just said. And they would say, here's the rules, have at it. And you know what? If a Cresco or a GTI can go out in that environment and rise to the top, God bless them. You know, there's there's always people that rise to the top of every industry. Why shouldn't it be them? Um, you know, and if doesn't mean, though, that I still can't go out and open up my dispensary, you know, right down the street in my own neighborhood. And maybe the, the folks in my neighborhood will want to come to my dispensary and maybe that'll be enough to make me happy. You know, but we, we just don't get that. And ultimately, too many people just never have a realistic chance of ever getting a license or if they do, of ever having any hope of succeeding because, you know, the table has been stacked so heavily against them. And that's the part that really concerns me. And that's really what's going on in Illinois. And, and I can't tell you you know, with any more certainty today than I could last week, whether any of those allegations in that federal complaint are true or even made in good faith, you know, or are they just being done as a charade to try and make a point? And, you know, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, I have no no knowledge of the Wrigley's having any direct interest. I know they have a son or something who was getting involved in the industry. Uh, the Pritzkers, I don't know of them being have any direct involvement. Again, maybe I'm just the most naive guy in the room. They, they are. They've got great involvement, um, but, but not not you know, necessarily the guys that are in Chicago, but the San Francisco Pritzkers, you know, certainly do. 
but you know, for the most part, you know, most of their, most of their assets for a long time were non-plant touching. Um, but do I think there's a conspiracy that exists that you know that that side of the Pritzker family is is you know putting their thumb on the scale to uh, to win things in Illinois? I've never heard anything about that, and certainly like I hear as many cannabis rumors as there are about things that are you know happening on a nefarious side of, of the industry, and I can't see anything that would support what's being alleged in, in this suit uh, as being you know even even supported by kind of the rumor mill in the space. Now again, like I'll wait to see what discovery produces. I'll wait to see you know what else they're doing. But you know, if if this is a frivolous lawsuit, it's a very harmful one because it's certainly implicating a lot of a lot of people that I think of, you know, if they have involvement, whether it's the Wrigleys, whether it's the Kovlers, whether it's the uh, the Pritzkers, who, who have you know done a lot to try to further the aims of the cannabis industry to move forward. Well, that's true, and, and you know, in the good old days, you would always think, you know, look. It's one thing to go into the circuit court of Cook County in downtown Chicago and file your crazy lawsuit. Everybody does. And, you know, if you get a judge who's, you know, really paying attention, maybe they say, no, counsel, look, I'm getting rid of this, you know. But that's it. Other than maybe some chit-chat in the hallways, that's the end of it. You go marching into federal court and you file a nonsense lawsuit just for the sake of making headlines, you've got a real problem on your hands as an attorney. That is not a place where you can go and play games. And I can certainly say the Northern District of Illinois uh, is not a tolerant district when it comes to people uh, trying to use the court for political advantage or uh, for any other purpose like that. And so, you know, uh, as a lawyer, it certainly leads me to want to believe that anybody who is willing to file that lawsuit and sign off on it and put their name on it did their homework. And whether they can prove their case or not, that they at least have enough facts and evidence to be able to survive what's certainly going to be a mountain of motions to dismiss that are going to get thrown at them. And, you know, that's that's where we'll see right away. If, if they can't survive a motion to dismiss, um, that's going to raise a lot of red flags. Not necessarily bad faith, but certainly something, you know, that would make you wonder why they're why they're pushing a bad hand. We'll see how that plays out. From what I read, and I've, I've read very little about this. You know, I leave it to you as the resident uh, legal expert in the state of Illinois. But allegedly, it's um, you know allegations of sort of cross pollination between the different boards of these companies, where you know board members from or executives from one company are sitting on the board of another, or you know the same board members are sitting on the board of both companies. I mean, look, I, I sit on the board of six or seven canvas companies right now. You know, I, I have to go through disclosures with every one of them. I've got to make sure that when I you know before I take a position, that uh, that I reveal everything else that I'm working on to make sure there's no conflicts of interest. It has to be voted on by the other board members. It has to go to annual meetings to make sure that the shareholders are comfortable with, uh, with who the board picks are. It's not an easy process, and that's especially true of a public company. I, mean, I sit on the board of, of, of Forefront uh, Ventures right now. Forefront's a pretty well-known MSO. That's, that's not something that um, I can do without having you know, a fair amount of scrutiny attached to everything that I do and, and with who, whom else I'm involved. And if there's a, a perceived conflict, the company, I can tell you, would much rather not deal with that. There's lots of people they can pick to be on their board that are, you know, well-qualified and suitable candidates. That if there's a perceived conflict of interest that could, you know, rise to the level of some sort of a liability for you, the company or for you as a director, no one wants that. So, you know, I find it really hard to believe that a lot of these questions weren't thought out by the groups that were picking these people as their board members prior to the time that they put them on. Well, I, you know, again, I'd like to certainly think that that's correct. I mean, I don't think there's anybody that's, you know, cheering for this lawsuit to be correct. You know, to the extent it is correct, it will be a much bigger problem for the, the Illinois market, you know, although it may help things clear up in the long run. But look, the, this is a, you know, 
Pritzker has to own this lawsuit because whether he's really culpable in any way, shape, or form as alleged in there uh, or has any knowledge of anything like that, the fact of the matter is he's the one who really championed this program as part of his whole uh, uh, campaign to get elected as governor and how he was going to rely on the, the, the huge amounts of uh, money that was going to come into the state coffers by taxing uh, all the proceeds from this industry. And as anyone who know who follows any kind of politics knows, you know, the state of Illinois has been having financial issues for years and years and years. And, you know, I think it's always us in Mississippi fighting for the bottom position among the 50 states, you know, who has the strongest financial position. And um, it, it, not only would it make zero sense for a guy like Pritzker, uh, you know, to be getting involved in any way uh, in, in a level to try to control the industry other than in his job as, as the governor of the state, uh, because there's really nothing in it for him uh, other than just more money. Uh, he's already got the power he wants by being the governor of the state, and that's going to be a surefire ticket you know, to get thrown out of office if anyone can ever prove that while he was the governor, uh, he exercised any authority in any way, shape, or form that allowed he or friends or family to benefit doesn't mean he doesn't do it. Unfortunately, that's been a hallmark of Chicago politics since the beginning of time. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something to, it's no small step to make that type of an allegation in federal court. And I'm going to be very interested to watch and see how the defendants respond to that. Um, you know, so far they've, they've taken a fairly low level approach in terms of, uh, you know, trying to mount a big PR campaign against it, which is probably also smart because there's probably a lot of people out there who don't even really understand or follow what's going on. But you look at one of the companies that's named, which is Akerna, and, and Akerna came out sort of scratching their head going, wait a second, guys, like, we're not even a plant-touching business. We're an ancillary business that supports the industry in terms of you know, doing POS systems and doing other um, you know, behind-the-scenes data uh, aggregation. So what are you alleging that we've done? Like all we do is you know, we, we service the entire industry, all companies. So that one didn't, didn't seem to make much sense at all. No, except again, I mean, look, it just depends how many layers you want to go down and, and you know, how, how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole in Illinois. But, for instance, you know, taking the, the lawsuit at its face value, I interpret it to say that, A, uh, there are forces at work here far greater than, you know, what are supposed to be uh, in terms of uh, getting these new licenses issued. I mean, look, we cannot lose sight of the fact, and Pritzker cannot ignore the fact, that we are now at April 27th, 2022. We are two years beyond the date when the first round of dispensary licenses were supposed to be announced. Two years. You have self-imposed deadline, I may add. You have people who have invested tons of money, both trying to get licenses or, you know, in the ancillary businesses thinking they're going to come in and service all of these new dispensaries that are going to come online. And it hasn't happened. And who benefits from it? The medical guys. I'm not saying the medical guys are the cause of that. But again, when... You, this isn't happening, and then these guys are getting this. Maybe you know, people say, look, Pritzker's the one ultimately who's controlling the ballgame here, so maybe he's doing this on purpose. I'm not aware of any evidence that would prove it, and I'm going to wait to see if these guys who filed the lawsuit have any evidence. But one great way to avoid that is get the damn licenses issued. You know, yeah, there'll always be one or two uh, sour grapes out there because if we're not going to give licenses to everybody, which, by the way, another good reason, right, is a good way to avoid these sour grapes. Uh, you, and you avoid all of these lawsuits. I mean, this Illinois industry has been basically... It goes back to my free market capitalism. 
You know, it goes right back to my argument. Like, if you actually just let people open and then let them work it out based on who's a good operator, you there would be no sour grapes. Okay, sorry, you failed. That's of your own design. That you know, hundred percent. Now, now I'll say in California, it's a little bit different, where you know the the, the structure is so um, anti-business from a tax perspective that even with you know kind of free market capitalism um, available to you. Uh, it still doesn't change the fact that it's really hard to, to make a living. Illinois doesn't have those same problems. So if they actually just expanded the market and said, let's everyone you know, have at it, you'd have something much more similar to Colorado. It makes so much more sense. I think you're right. And it seems to me that most states wind up getting there eventually, right? It's just a, a very, very slow rollout. By the time you get to your fifth or sixth round of licenses, you've probably got licenses out to almost anybody who wants them or close to it. And then, you know, you can just kind of throw the doors open and say to everybody else, okay, look, if you want in, now you can take the gamble from a business perspective. Um, but it, it is, you know, I, I think in, in many respects, structurally and fundamentally unfair to the people who just don't have the, 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 the access to the capital necessary, uh, you know, to really go in and compete for these licenses. And they just don't. And, you know, as a guy who represented a lot of people trying to get licenses, um, you know, I, I can see where the where the struggles come from, and you know where the uh, uh, inherent unfairness in the entire system ultimately lies. And again, I'm not saying that anybody's doing something wrong; they're just taking advantage of a system that's poorly set up. Yeah, I mean, you can always do what Massachusetts has done as well, which is you go through a couple of rounds of licenses, and then you say, okay, now we're just going to throw it open to whoever wants to do it. It's going to go, you know, to municipality self-rule, and the municipalities can cap the number of uh, licenses they want in their town. So, you know, if the town doesn't want more than two or three, then they can say, we're going we're gonna to cap it. Now, I'll tell you that, you know, Mass has been very, very slow at the CCC level to, you know, get these licenses done and, and finalized, and it's got its own issues. But in theory, there's no reason you can't say we're going to stop the merit-based application system, you know, one that was in early has got their first mover advantage. Now we're going to open it up and have at it, and, you know, towns can make their decisions on what they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, look, ultimately, that's where it has to get, right? I mean, with something like this, it's just like any community in, in Illinois, you know, for years, uh, everybody used to joke about how Evanston, Illinois was a dry community. You know, there was a university there and, you know, it was right next door to Chicago, but it was dry. And, and Howard Street is the street that runs down the, the, the boundary line between the city of Chicago and Evanston. There were bars on one side of the street and none on the other. And so all the college kids had to go over to the border and step across Howard Street and, you know, to be able to get to the bars. Finally, Evanston said, you know what, we'd like to capture some of that income right here in good old Evanston. And they have. And Evanston is still here. You know, it didn't fall off the earth or get, you know, sucked under Lake Michigan or anything. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good example for all these municipalities. And we've had these conversations in the past. But when you try to legislate morality on this level, it just doesn't work. People are going to get high. They've always gotten high. And you can't stop and tell them no. Why? We know this because it's a Schedule One controlled substance and everybody's smoking, which takes us into our last good story for the day. Speaking of our good friends at Akerna, they happen to provide some very interesting information. We all know that 420, right, April 20th, is a has become a semi-national holiday. It's just a matter of time before they cancel mail service on that day. What's happening on in terms of sales on 420 is just absolutely startling. What was that sales figure, Rob? $154 million in a single day. Now, again... 400, right? No, no, no. 400 over like the, uh, the, the sort of holiday period. But on, on, over the six-day yeah, period, on, right? on the actual yep, yep. day itself, it's $154 million. 
which is just a massive, massive uptick from, uh, from what the previous record had been, which I think was $112 million previously. So, you know, that's a, that's a 38.1% increase over the single biggest day of sales in the past. Now, again, this, this number isn't um, gospel. It's not, you know, strictly factual number. It's really hard to pull. But what Akerna does, you know, they, they run the POS systems for a ton of different retailers uh, through their MJ Freeway software platform. And they're able to capture, you know, what percentage of the market they represent versus what the sales were for their customers. Uh, and then sort of cross-reference that against what they think is a, an accurate number. But they're, they're pretty darn good, you know. And if you look at the other groups that are out there compiling data, whether it's BDS Analytics or Headset, you know, across the board, everyone will tell you that, you know, it was, it was a record day. But a current actually, you know, put a headline number out there and said, you know, we believe this to be the accurate number. Um, it, that's huge. It's absolutely huge. I mean, for a single day sales, and granted, every year there's more and more legal markets. There's more and more places to access uh, medicinal and legal um, adult use cannabis. It's easy to say kind of what the, um, that the sales should increase and the overall CAGR of the industry can, continues to grow from just an annual growth rate. Um, having said that, this is a big jump. You know, this isn't, this isn't like, oh, it's you know, 4% growth year over year or 5% or 6%. 38% on a single day uh, and, you know, putting up numbers like that across the country in one day, that's huge. You always expect 420 to be, you know, by far the biggest day of sales of the year. And there's two or three others that are close behind it, like July 4th, you know, weekend is always a pretty big one. But, uh, but this, is, um, th- this is real news to say, this is like how much is consumed. I mean, I, I'd like to compare it to see, you know, how much alcohol is consumed on New Year's Eve, you know, which is, a, it's a harder number to quantify because there's, you know, bar sales and there's liquor store sales. But even just like liquor store sales, let's see what New Year's Eve is. And I've got to think, it's not $154 million in a day. I don't think anything is, is hitting this. Look, it, it, it's a huge number. And, you know, it speaks to two things, right? Number one, it speaks to the popularity of marijuana in this culture. And people can argue morality all they want, but it's here and it's not going anywhere. That that number is too large to ever, you know, for people to ever be successful in getting rid of it. The best they can do is hope to corral it or get a piece of it by making it legal and working within the system. Uh, although I will tell you, I, I, I admire that and I, I think it's great and I, and I understand for the uh, uh, dispensaries why it's such a huge day. You know, it's like my kids always used to like to go to 7-Eleven on July 11th, of course, right? Because they would go in and get free slushies that day. So, you know, and, and on Domino's or the pizza places on 314, right? You get your pie day pizzas and all that kind of stuff. This is just interesting to me because... The dispensaries are always here. Yes, they <clears throat> they give you a savings, but it's like people just want to say, I bought marijuana on 420. And on the 20th this year, I was driving home from work and I, I did actually want to go by and try and get some stuff and hoped I could go and take advantage of the discounts. Uh, but when I got to the dispensary, I like to go to an Evanston uh, that closes at eight o'clock and I got there at about 7.15. And I, I've, I've, in all the years I've gone there, I've always walked up, walked in the door. Sometimes once I'm inside the door, I have to wait in the line, but I've never seen a line that goes outside. This line went outside the door, down two blocks, and then around the corner, another two blocks. And I said, look, as much as it would be fun to be in there on 420, I ain't waiting in this line. I went home. I drove over there the next day. I walked right in. I bought what I needed. They still had a residual you know, 420 holiday type of sale going on. Not the same amount of a discount, but you know, enough, but... It's 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 just it's an amazing an amazing event and it's the Black Friday of cannabis. It is, and it, it's pretty cool to see. And every year it gets bigger and bigger, and every year you know four twenty parties get bigger. 
you know, what, what I found interesting about this 420, and, and not in a good way, in a really obnoxiously um, sort of corporate way, was that Denver has always been the, uh, the city that you look to to say, you know, who's got the coolest 420 celebration? It used to be right in the, uh, the park that was uh, sitting in front of the Capitol, and that's been going on for years. And they finally got rid of that, um, that celebration a couple of years ago because it was just getting unruly. So they decided to put it back in place this year, but they put it back in place with a no-consumption policy in the park, it was free tickets. There was a lot of good music. They had a bunch of artists there, but they said you couldn't couldn't consume. Yet they had alcohol stands throughout the place, and you could get wristbands. So they basically just like corporatized this thing, turned it into a drinking fest, and celebrated 420, which is like absolutely nuts. So I mean, if you looked at you know on any sort of like Twitter feeds or any other things that were you know talking about it, everyone in Colorado that was like a serious like you know advocate for the cannabis industry boycotted this event. When you've got to be joking us, like. How did you hijack our event and turn it into a place where you can go buy, you know, microbrews and something, nothing wrong with that, but choose your own date, you know, get, get the beer date, you know, and, and do that. But, uh, but don't steal our event. Well, you know, what's fascinating to me about that is that even with the advent of, of marijuana and with all of its uh, legalized availability and decriminalization and all of that, drinking is just so deeply embedded in this culture in such a way and marijuana ostracized so much that, I mean, that's two huge hurdles, right, for marijuana. First, it has to even get to a point where you can get some level of public acceptance, and then you have to get to a point where it can, you know, seriously begin to chip away at, you know, the the the, the lead that alcohol has. But I don't know about you, Rob, but the, one of the things that used to drive me crazy early on at some of these uh, conferences we'd go to, you know, 2014, 2015, right when they were all just getting started, is that you'd be at this great conference and hearing all of this great stuff, and then all of a sudden, boom, 5 o'clock happy hour, and everybody was running downstairs to get drinks. Everybody wanted to drink. And I'm like, this is cannabis group. You know, we're not the, you know, this is an alcohol group. Why can't, well, we, they won't let us smoke in here. We can't do this. But we can drink, you know. If you're, if you're behind schedule uh, on your panel, which has happened to me a couple times from the last panel of the day, suddenly you're speaking to an empty room because everyone's at happy hour. Right. And I just, it just cracks me up that all of these people are, everyone, everybody wants to go drinking, everybody wants to go, we'll meet at the bar, we'll have drinks. And they sit there and they get smashed drinking after we've all been talking about the benefits of smoking marijuana. So, I mean, I, I, I'll confess I'm not a big drinker anyway, but uh, I, I just, you know, that always tickles me a little bit that, uh, uh, that, that even among the industry, cannabis is revered and I you know I've I've probably told this story before but I had a run in here once with with one of the MSOs that where I was invited to a, a fundraiser that they were sponsoring for a local politician and uh went and had uh smoked one of their pre-rolls before the event and at the end of the night when I was saying goodbye to everybody and I, there were some judges there and other politicians and people I knew who I had spoken with during the evening I went with an acquaintance of mine and uh, we were talking to everybody when we left. Uh, one of the sponsors' uh, secretaries pulled me over and said, thank you, it was so nice to have you here. We really appreciate it. Can you come to future events? Sure, we'd love to. Let us know how we can help. And the next day, the guy from the MSO called me, who was one of the sponsors, and said, when you walked in last night, you had smoked marijuana, hadn't you? And I said, well, yeah. No, man, you can't do that. That is not cool. That's not okay. I'm like, wait a second. It was your product, legally purchased and legally consumed. You're going to pot shame me coming to your event? And that's basically what was happening. And they kind of blackballed me after that. And that, you know, really bothered me a lot that a company that was making its living by selling marijuana to the rest of us, uh, you know, still bought into the stigma enough that they didn't want anybody coming to an event that they were sponsoring, not even talking about consuming at the location, 
I'm just talking about having consumed before we got there. And again, walked into a room where everybody was just pounding drinks. Judges were drinking. Other lawyers were drinking. Politicians were drinking. A lot. A lot. So much that, you know, the cops could have just sat right outside that parking lot and pulled everybody over. But for some reason, that wasn't an issue for anybody. And, you know, when you see it on that level, that even some of the guys who have gotten into this industry on the business side of it, they themselves can't even quite get past this idea that it's okay to sell it, but, you know, it's not really cool to consume it in, you know, polite company. Well, I think, I think a lot of that has changed. I mean, I remember, you know, MJ business uh, conferences in Vegas, you know, four or five years ago, people were getting thrown out of places right and left for consuming in Vegas. And, you know, now that's uh, largely abated. I mean, you still can't, you still can't be as overt as you want to be, but, you know, if you're like renting out a rooftop, um, you know, at a club, they're a little bit looser than they used to be. So, you know, hopefully that stigma's changing. But I agree, if, if, if your uh, business is selling cannabis, you shouldn't stigmatize someone for using cannabis. Um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that every place is appropriate for cannabis consumption, but if it's a party where it's a cannabis group that's, that's putting it on, they should certainly be, you know, expecting that most people that are coming in there will have either used or, you know, plan on consuming. Uh, as they're there to support the business, so it's, it's a, or at least that they'll have a, a positive view of it, right? They may not use it themselves, of, of course. But to sit there and to say, "Don't come into my bar and drink," right? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, look, it, it, it it's just going to be something that's going to take a long time for everybody. And you know, I say that's fine, except for the fact that I'm 60 years old and I don't have a lot of time left. You know, relatively speaking. So, right. you Smoke know, if you got them, I, I, you know, that's it. I, I I've resolved it all in my mind and. You know, uh, maybe everybody else hasn't, but you know that that's that now it now it becomes their issue instead of mine, right? Just let it roll off of me onto somebody else, and they can mess around with it. But really, it's it's uh, it's wonderful to see New York. It's wonderful to see New Jersey. Better late than never. It's wonderful to see such huge sale numbers, and hopefully someday we'll be able to say it's great to see a good successful industry in Illinois. But today's not that day, so. We'll, we'll we'll stick that in our bag and uh, and save it for another time. Yeah, and let's 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 reserve our rightful or righteous indignation for uh, for a future time, and let's get back to positive things like uh, Hundred Years Hall in uh, in Germany in nineteen seventy two. Absolutely, you know, such a great such a, a great Grateful Dead show. Um, literally, we're we're going to play some more tunes in a minute from it, but you know, as I sit here and I look at the the full set list, it, it starts with that Bertha that's just unbelievable. He's gone, black-throated wind. And I love the fact that, you know, they're playing He's Gone here, right? Because Pigpen is on the tour, and hopefully that finally dissuades everyone of the idea that He's Gone was ever written about Pigpen instead of Lenny Hart. But I know that's a hard sell for some people. It's so obvious. <laughs> it's so... And I, I've never understood anyone could, could, once they know the story of, of Lenny Hart, how they could believe anything else but that's about Lenny Hart. The same way that, you know, once you understand that the, you know, who the Waldos are, that you could believe that 420 is about anything but, you know, what the Waldos created. Like, there's certain things that once you, once you actually hear, like, the, the, the real thing, you go, ah, of course. You know, it's that eureka moment. And, uh, you know, when you read the story or hear the stories about, you know, Lenny Hart's absconding with the Grateful Dead's cash... Uh, there's, there's no like, it's, it's like the Grateful Dead's version of positively Fourth Street. Right. He, he stole their face right off their head, literally, and then you know, and he's gone. But you know better, but I know him. But what's interesting about it is that the Dead have even, even adapted it. Right. I remember at the uh, 2002 Terrapin family reunion up at Alpine Valley when they, the very first time, uh, they, they were, they were all together, and. 
you know, they came out to play it and they, they opened the show playing it very slowly in, a, in an instrumental way that was clearly meant to suggest the fact that we were all missing Jerry Garcia. And I thought, you know, that's, that's like the Republican politicians who want to play born in the USA to say it supports being born in the USA, you know, and it's like you're kind of missing the point of the song. Yeah. But, I mean, we were in the past dedicated, um, he's gone to Bobby Sands at one point, who was, you know, the former IRA head. You know, so there's other times they've, they've taken the song and said, okay, this one goes out to someone else. So, I mean, it can be adapted, but, you know, why was it written? You know, like, as much as Bird's song was written for, uh, for Janice, He's Gone was written for Lenny. Yep. And it, it's, you know, so that's great on here. Another tune that we're not going to listen to today, but I think is really interesting because you, you don't really hear it too many other places except on Europe 72 is two, the, the Strangers, Two Souls in Communion. I almost chose that as one of the things to feature today, because you're right, it's just such a rare one, and so it's really, really pleasant as well. But, you know, so, somewhat of an obscure choice and kind of an obvious choice because of its obscurity. But there's so many other good things on here that, uh, that when I thought about some clips to play, there were some other ones that were pretty hot, so... No doubt. It's just, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Europe 72 is, is, you know, Pigpen getting pretty much towards the end of his run with the boys. And, uh, you know, there's that that they play uh, most nights on the tour. And then the other Pigpen tune that I love that they play pretty much the entire tour, and I never really heard it again anywhere else besides Europe 72, is Chinatown Shuffle. That's a fun tune. Yeah, for sure. That just kind of... You know, zips along, and then the other thing you know that I've I've really gotten familiar with now from from reading up on it is that this uh, hundred year hall night is another one night. Uh, they alternated each night. One night was another one night, and then the next night was a dark star night. And that they there, there may have been one or two shows where they played both of them. I didn't know that. But you know, these are like monumental other ones. You know, like this the one on this show is is thirty six minutes long. So you know, that's clocking in right around the time as a standard dark star anyway just great stuff just really really great stuff to see um and and to be able to listen to it, it and then of course the other thing on on this album and this was released on the 100 year hall release is a beautiful beautiful it was the first time i'd ever heard such a, a, a live version of comes a time and that's just and really really incredible on this one too yeah <clears throat> if we hadn't like recently talked about comes a time i probably would have uh, chosen that one to listen to it but I did pick the uh, the Dire Wolf out. And, you know, maybe we uh, maybe we listen to a little bit of that just to, uh, to get a sense of just kind of again how clean the playing is um, in the Dire Wolf and throughout this entire show. So Dan, I don't know if you have that queued up, but, uh, but maybe let's you know take a quick listen to that as well. That's really, really nice, huh, Larry? It's such a beautiful tune. It's such a fun tune. And, you know, they, they played it a lot early on. I don't remember them playing it quite as much later in the 90s and everything. But, it, you know, it's, it's another one of these tunes that just tells a great story. And I like um, when they play it on the, uh, dead, uh, the dead station on uh, Sirius XM, you know, they, they have this whole thing where every time they play a song off of uh, Working Man's Dead, they have a brief little Bob Weir introduction about 
what inspired the song or this or that. And here he talks about how Dire Wolf, we always just kind of figured it was Hunter woke up from a fever dream and just wrote it all down, you know? And, and if you think about it, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of a tale of murder and, and this kind of stuff, but uh, it's a great tune, and I love Garcia's voice on it. He really, really plays it well. You know, everyone always asks like, each other, it's one of those things, like, it's the question, like, what song got you into The Grateful Dead? Who introduced you to The Grateful Dead? You know, what was the first song you saw live? But, uh, you know, the first song that really caught my ear, which is really surprising, because there were other ones I knew, you know, I, at this point, you know, when I was like 13 or 14, I'd heard Casey Jones, obviously, and heard, you know, like a handful of other, you know, Grateful Dead songs, Ripple, I was already familiar with. But the first song that really, like, caught my attention, where I'm like, what, what's that? And, like, I want to hear that again, and, you know, get me a recording of it. Believe it or not, it was Direwolf, which is, you know, kind of a random one to, uh, to have this kind of, like, your, your intro to The Grateful Dead. It was Direwolf first, and then very soon after Franklin's Tower. But um, but Direwolf was the was the first thing. It was my next door neighbor that I grew up with in the summertime. That you know was just playing tunes in his room, and I happened to be in there, and you know he was playing the Grateful Dead, and it was Direwolf. I'm like, that sounds awesome. So uh, you know, I've always had a bit of an affinity because that was that was the one that for me kicked it off, which is you know like a totally random one for for you to have this like the the opening salvo into your love of the Grateful Dead's music. But that's the beauty of it, right? Is that for everybody, it was something different. You know, for some people, it was a, you know, it was a thundering, you know, scarlet fire. For me, it was an amazing Ico coming out of space in uh, Syracuse in 82. You know, but th there's always going to be that tune. The other tune that, that always used to stick in my mind, and I, it took me a long time to, to really come around and pin it down, was uh, the, the, the chorus from The Wheel. Right, if the thunder don't catch you, then the lightning will. And I used to love that. And I remember I had heard it once or twice in concert. I hadn't quite put it together. And one day I was taking a nap upstairs in my house at, at Michigan, and my roommate had just come back from the entire tour, and he was playing some of his tapes, and he was playing that song, and it was cranking it so loud that it woke me up. But I was happy that it woke me up because I went running downstairs. What is this song? I keep singing it to myself. Oh, it's the wheel. And then, of course, you know, well, of course, it's such a great, wonderful tune. It was. It's just the way it happens. Yep, absolutely. So uh, before we wrap it up today, um, I know we got some great guests that are coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, speaking of Scarlet Fires, we've got the uh, the owner of Scarlet Fire Dispensary up in Canada. Uh, we've got uh, another gal who's got a podcast called Strangers Stopping Strangers who will be joining us, I believe, on the 11th. Uh, <clears throat> she also um, is, is part of the Garcia's Handpicked team. So we're really excited to have Stacy on the show. I think we've got uh, a couple other guests lined up. So I'm, I'm really excited over the next couple of weeks where a lot of like good sort of pure deadheads, you know, they're coming on here to talk about their experience in the cannabis industry, which we haven't done, you know, as much of in a while. We, for a while, we were really hitting it. We were getting a lot of industry professionals that would come out and just, you know, talk about their experience of being deadheads. But we kind of like moved away for a while and, and, and took some other people that, uh, that you know, are, are really well known to the Grateful Dead community. But I'm, I'm kind of stoked to go back to our roots and, and just have uh, people that have great war stories of, of being in the cannabis industry and, and their love of the Grateful Dead's music. Indeed. And, and next week we have Eric Branstad of uh, the Greenhouse Advisory Group. So we do have quite a good number uh, lined up here for us to see. And um, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. On the uh, Garcia Handpicked, uh, I just received notice today from my good friend and friend of the show, Andy Greenberg from San Francisco, that now... Uh, Garcia Handpicked has also released their own line of rolling papers. So that's going to become, you know, de rigueur for anyone who goes to a dead show. If you don't pull out Garcia rolling papers to roll a joint, 
you know, what the hell good are you? So, well, I'm sure we can ask Stacey Smith all about that. I'm sure she's going to have some, some pretty good intel for us on what's happening behind the scenes uh, at Holistic. Absolutely. Um, one other thing I just want to mention really quickly before we hop off here. This past Saturday night, my wife and I were, were uh, uh, treated to just a, an absolutely amazing night of music. Um, compliments of a good buddy of mine, Steve Elliott from the University of Michigan, a fellow member of the M Legends Club, a group of us that have been in contact with one another through the magic of uh, texting and discussing everything from Michigan football to what was Elvis Costello's best album. Uh, but uh, Steve, who lives in Ann Arbor, uh, reached out to me because he is very, very good friends with a gentleman by the name of Cahill El Zabar. Cahill El Zabar is a percussionist, a jazz percussionist, and a number of other things I learned while I was there. Uh, and, and he and his wife, Lucy, uh, purchased a space in the South Loop, and well, just beyond the South Loop, 2500 South in Chicago. And last Saturday night, they uh, had invited some friends, and, and Steve is a friend of his and was invited, and he was able to get my wife, uh, Judy, and I an invite as well. And we were there, and we heard Cahill play uh, with this almost random group of jazz musicians whom he knows and who he's either played with in the past or who he's worked with or uh, he teaches and so some of them have come to him as students but uh, there were people there from uh, practically all over the world so a German and somebody from uh, England and uh, and in this tiny little space where we were all just kind of jammed in uh, they came out and played uh, two sets of uh, four or five uh, improvisational pieces per set and what really struck me why I, I really was enjoying this is that Cahill also has a very good relationship, close personal professional relationship with David Murray, uh, who, as many of you might know, joined the Grateful Dead on stage at a memorable show in Madison Square Garden uh, in September of 93, which I believe, Rob, you were at. I was, yeah. So it was an opportunity. I had happened to mention this to my friend Steve, who said, oh, I know Cahill, and he's going to have this uh, opportunity. So we went. And um, Cahill and I had a chance to talk afterwards. He's, he's just an amazing person uh, who never really saw the Grateful Dead, but knows a lot about them. And we talked about how David Murray, in addition to playing with the Dead, had put out uh, his own instrumental version of Dark Star. And uh, Cahill was able to talk about Dark Star and, and the, the type of music it is and the free form that, that makes it up. But yet it, it's all held together by being, you know, the, everybody's part of a community and you, you, you tie it in that way. And the fact that a uh, jazz musician uh, who wasn't even a self-professed deadhead, you know, knew about Dark Star and could speak about it that way uh, just blew me away. And what we were listening to sounded a lot like Dark Star all night, just this improvisational stuff with a little drum here and a little guitar there and bells and all sorts of weird noises, you know, mixed in. And it was just a tremendous experience. So if anyone ever has a chance uh, to see Cahill El Zabar uh, in any of the various combinations that he plays, I highly recommend it. And we're hoping that we will be able to get uh, Cahill on the podcast one day to talk with us more about his thoughts on the Grateful Dead and a sense of community and how music brings everybody together. So that was a great thing. Very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, I'll put it out there also. If there's people out there listening that you know are, are big deadheads and have cannabis industry experience as well, you know, reach out to us. You know, we'd love to hear from you. You can definitely reach us, um, you know, through the Pod Connects, you know, webpage. So if you just look up the Deadhead Canvas Show, there's an application to get on there. So if you want to be a guest and come on and rap with us for a little bit, we're down. You know, the, we, we love hearing from you and we love hearing stories of, of kind of what your experience in the industry and, and you know, with music is as well. Um, before we jump off, Larry, did you get a chance to see the video from uh, MSG of, of whales flying through Madison Square Garden uh, during Fish's shows this past week? <laughs> 
I did. Uh, my oldest son, Matthew, and his uh, wife, Elena, were out there with their huge, gigantic group of uh, fish friends. And I would love to go through and name check all of them, but there's too many and we don't have enough time. And I'd probably forget one or two and then I'd feel bad. Uh, but they were out there and uh, they said that the shows were as good as they sounded and, and looked through the set lists. But this thing... The second night, second set was fire. This awesome. Really unbelievable, I thought. Um but what I love about them is, you know, okay, fine. They do the show where they, they go up and down in the, the state on the lifts and Trey got stuck up on his, but they're always doing something different. And this time they, they created an aquarium inside Madison Square Garden. They raised the stage up. So it looked like there was water underneath. With, and with kelp forest coming down during the split open and melt. It was, it was amazing. It really was. And yeah. But, the, but, the, but watching those dolphins and whales swim around was just, all I could imagine was, imagine if they had done something like that at one of those dead New Year's Eve shows and we were all tripping our faces off. I, that just would have been too much, maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, again... But, I, but in a good way. I love the fact that Couch Tour allows you to watch these things and I love that the videos come out right away and that's all, you know, another completely different thing. I mean, as we talked about last week, when we saw shows, there, there was no cell phones. So you couldn't even record these things. Nowadays, like, it's you can't not go to a show without a cell phone and a video recording of it. But, uh, but the... The footage I saw of dolphins and whales swimming through the uh, the air over the audience of Madison Square Garden is one of the one of the cooler things I've seen. So uh, you know, bands out there, keep getting creative because as fans, we love it. I, I I tip my hat to fish. You know, they're they're not getting older; they're getting more creative. And really, just you know, the ways that they keep uh, you know finding new ways to bring themselves you know to the public and you know to to do everything that they do is is really a tribute to them. You know, they've now been playing, well, I guess not entirely because they had a couple of off years there where they, but, you know, almost as long as the Grateful Dead played. And 37 years, longer now, you know, from 85 to 22, it's 37 years. Well, there was there was a few years off though, right? Between yep, sure, 2.0 sure. and 3.0 or something. I, 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 I don't understand all those geographic markers very well, but I know that there's some break. But either way, um, you know, they're at a point where we always compare and we always talk about how, you know, Jerry could barely, you know, say sing the words to his songs. Of course, he had a much bigger problem going on inside of him that led to his demise. But, you know, it, it's just wonderful to see this band, you know, uh, sharp and, and, you know, they miss their New Year's Eve shows, but they never skipped a beat. They said, we're going to do it. And I don't know about you, Rob, but how many bands say they're going to do it, actually do it. And then the third night, which would have been the night of the New Year's Eve show, play the third set that the people would have had if they had been at the New Year's Eve show. I mean, that's 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 kind of above and beyond, in my opinion. That's, that's nice. Hats off. <clears throat> Hats off for sure. Well, with that... Um Thanks as always, Larry. Another really fun show with you, and uh, looking forward to the next couple of weeks. Signing off from uh, from Southern California, I'm going to leave uh, leave us after you say goodbye with a little bit of the Jack Straw from uh, from 426.72 as well. Uh, you know, the, the early days of Jack Straw when there's only about a 25 second jam uh, going into the ending is, is what we're going to listen to. But uh, a lot of fun as always, and uh, we'll see you next week. This is Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings signing off. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, Jack Straw is always one of my all-time favorites. And uh, when we were at the uh, 50-year reunion, and they played that Jack Straw, and they just kicked into it, it was, you know, a special feeling. It, it really felt like being at a dead show. It was, you know, transcended every other thing that was going on to say this is this is what it felt like to be at a dead show it's just i never was at a show where they opened with jack straw where it wasn't a great show so look forward to listening to that thank you to all of our listeners out there who joined us this week uh, as rob indicated we have some great guests coming up a lot more of europe 72 to be talking about 
Um, check it out whenever you can. This is the time to be listening to it. For those of you on the East Coast, get ready to start enjoying what those of us here in the Midwest and the West Coast have been enjoying for a long time. It's a long wait, but it's well worth it. So welcome to the world of legal cannabis. Be safe, have a good week, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.